Morning, everyone. Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day is off to a great start. So we have Scott Witt with us today. Good morning, Steve. How you doing, Scott? Good. How are you? <laughs> good. Good. Thanks for asking. Nice day over here in PA. How, how about up by you? Yeah, it's a nice day uh, here in Wisconsin as well. Right on, right on. So we've got a nice topic to go through today, which uh, I think you're the, the perfect person to address this, uh, which is the idea of using cash value life insurance really as an investment, you know, the pros and cons to it, uh, which you can speak to this in a way that many people like myself cannot for, you know, call it compliance reasons, how the insurance industry or the financial service services industry is positioned, but you've got... Uh, an element with your particular practice where you can speak directly to this. I think this is an extremely valuable topic to to touch on because a lot of people are interested in it. They view it as an investment in a lot of ways, but how does it work? How do I accurately compare it? And with your background, I mean, you're the guy to go into this. <laughs> well, I hope so. Certainly. So with the, the topic, because I know in your practice, when we first connected, uh, this came up. I mean, a lot of times you'll work with individuals and we'll have the discussion of using life insurance as an investment and specifically, and you may want to speak to this more, you're comparing it to bond stocks. Hey, if I can earn a better return elsewhere, at what point does it make sense or does it not make sense to actually utilize the cash value life insurance policy? Yeah, correct. And this, this is one of the most common engagements that I have. People reach out to me either to evaluate an existing proposal that, that they've been shown, or perhaps just to design something from scratch. You know, they may have read a book um, about um, life, life insurance as an investment or one of these, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, schemes that, that incorporates life insurance. And so they may want a second opinion or they may like the idea. They may have some idle cash sitting around and kind of in the back of their mind, they, they know that they're not being as efficient as they could be. And so this, this is one of the most common engagements that I have. And you're exactly right. While you know life insurance cannot sell life insurance as an investment, I am simply a fee-only insurance advisor. I have no bias one way or the other. I get paid the same whether or not my clients actually purchase a policy. So if I tell them that it is or isn't a good investment, um, I think it means something, and I think the the fact that I get paid the same either way, I think allows me to provide objective advice in a way that that few people, uh, and certainly commissioned people in the industry, um, can. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, I personally do not classify it as an investment per se because I, I can't. I mean, from a compliance standpoint, how life insurance the industry works, we can legally call it a fixed asset, a fixed savings asset. The death benefit has priority, cash value. We can explain elements around it, but you're 100% accurate where we've got to be cautious. We've got to be compliant. I mean, that's always important to do. The insurance companies are protecting themselves, the industry. I get it. You never want to go against them in that respect. There's a there's a reason. They're, they have good intentions in that respect why they do that. But at the same time, as a consumer, right, if I'm not in the industry, I'm going to look at this and say, all right, well, I'm comparing it to my stocks and bonds. I'm the consumer. If I'm talking to you, I can call it, you can call it whatever you want. If you're the insurance agent, here's how I'm looking at it. Just tell me how it works. <laughs> yeah. And I, th I think, you know, you bring up a good point and it, it's, it's one that we'll circle back on probably multiple times. Opportunity cost really makes a huge difference. So 
it's it's difficult to analyze a policy in a vacuum and just say this is a good investment or it's not a good investment. And this goes, I, I have a lot of people that hire me to review existing policies as well. Maybe they don't need insurance anymore. And now they're simply trying to figure out if they should want that insurance as a decent investment. You know, could the policy be reformed in such a way that it provides a compelling um, investment on a forward-looking basis? But what is really key in all of those situations is the opportunity cost. What would you be doing with this money if it were not allocated to the life insurance policy? And so at the, the very same policy in two different analyses, I might conclude um, is a great investment for an individual or is a not so great investment for an individual based solely on their opportunity cost and what they would have otherwise done with that money. Gotcha. So if somebody comes to me with a couple hundred grand sitting in a money market or in cash in their checking account, and they typically have an amount like that, they are a much more compelling candidate for using life insurance as a conservative investment than say somebody who comes to me with, with almost no liquidity and all of their money is tied up in real estate and, or stocks and they feel like it's earning seven, eight percent. And now they read a book and they're thinking about liquidating some of that and, and shifting it over to life insurance. That may not be a very compelling case because now you're, you're, you're not necessarily upgrading on the return and you may be sacrificing something to get there. So it's the, the, the context of these analyses is really important. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks for going into that. So I guess to start, uh, like my question would be, and I think what a lot of listeners would like to hear is from your perspective, with your, your background as an actuary and you majored in statistics, correct? I got a, I have a graduate degree in statistics, got, yeah. Gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. So when would it make sense, and, and you can kind of role play with me, if I'm the client, I've got money in stocks, bonds, you know, in a money market, wherever, kind of what your typical case you see, and I can even shed some light as far as typical, typical cases we see, but if I've got assets diversified and I'm considering life insurance, when would you tell me, okay, looking at this, Steve, does not make sense, or looking at this, it would make sense. Pros and cons, when would it make sense? This will give people an idea of kind of what to expect if they decide to reach out to you. Hey, saw you going through this. Here's my specific case. But if you want to speak to that a little bit or role play with me, you know, I can be one of your clients as well. Yeah. I mean, let me let me answer that broadly. And then I think I can share a little bit of my own personal experience sure. um, as well. So I, I think that there are there are two prerequisites that really jump out that help tilt the odds in favor of, of using cash value life insurance in this manner. The first is it's more compelling if you're dealing with somebody who has some sort of legacy or inheritance objective. If you're dealing with somebody that 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 is hoping to die with their last dollar in their pocket and they don't really have any dependents and it's just about not outliving their own money, that somewhat undermines some of the appeal of life insurance. And so if, if, if we're dealing with somebody who has enough wealth and a, and a family situation or a, or a dependent situation where they have some desire to pass on some wealth to someone that that's a nice um, box to check in advance of this. Doesn't mean that it's impossible without it, but that's kind of a classic situation. The other thing that really helps check off a box is if they have some sort of bond or fixed, fixed income exposure, particularly taxable fixed income exposure, and they plan to have that for the rest of their life. 
for many people, for, for many people, neither of those things are much of a caveat. You know, my typical client does have enough money or some charitable um, or legacy objective in mind. And so they don't mind the idea of having some life insurance at the tail end of life as an asset that gets passed on uh, to, be to a beneficiary. Most people also, if you follow the typical allocation models, most people as they accumulate more wealth tend to have more of their portfolio shifted towards bonds or, or fixed income assets. And so this notion of having some fixed income exposure over their remaining lifetime is not much of a hurdle to overcome. Yeah. And if you're, a, if you're at a high enough level of wealth, when you start and you have, let's say, a bunch of qualified money and that money starts getting pumped out from your, your qualified accounts, you may not be able to spend it all. And naturally, you have a bit of a shift from qualified to non-qualified assets. And now you might end up with some more of those non-qualified assets being put in bonds. And, and now when we're talking about taxable bonds as compared with cash value life insurance, now you're starting to, to narrow the focus to something where it's possible at least to construct a cash value life insurance policy that starts to become a pretty compelling story. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nice. Thanks for setting the stage there. So if yeah, I, got... I guess, let me, let me segue yeah. to, to my own personal situation too, because I think that'll help set the stage for the listeners. Absolutely. I don't have any taxable bonds in, in my personal financial portfolio. All of my taxable bond exposure or what, what, what would be, you know, non-qualified taxable bond exposure, all of that is in cash value life insurance. And the fact that I have a, a good chunk of money in cash value life insurance gives me the peace of mind to invest aggressively with the rest of my portfolio. I also don't feel like I need to have six months or a year of cash sitting in the bank because I do have the ability to access um, the through, through a policy loan. I could access cash through my life insurance policies if I needed. And so the fact that I'm able to invest more aggressively and let it ride um, contributes value elsewhere in the rest of my portfolio. The fact that I don't have to be as liquid uh, for an emergency type situation gives me the peace of mind to invest more of my money and have less of it sitting in idle cash. That also is an incremental advantage that isn't even really captured if you just analyze the life insurance policy. And then the final thing I'll say on that is just, I think it helps improve the quality of life. There, there's a chunk of my portfolio that cannot lose money. It just goes up, up, up. And there's no day-to-day -day volatility. There's almost, there's really no downward volatility. It's just a matter of how much is it going to grow in the next year? How much is it going to grow in the future? And so it is, it is a very stable asset and goes very well with the rest of my portfolio. And so that, that's something I, you know, I set up, frankly, probably when I didn't even know how good of a deal it was, but in retrospect, you know, I'm so glad that I set that up and it, it is a significant portion uh, of my overall financial picture. And I feel like I get the best of both worlds. Yeah. I am getting outstanding returns and tax treatment on my cash value life insurance policy. And I'm a buy and hold equity investor. Um, and, and that enables to capture some of the same benefits that, that we're going to talk about here with, with cash value life insurance. And so... I feel my overall portfolio 
is positioned very well on the efficient frontier. And, and certain segments of it, I feel like, could not possibly improve, be improved upon without taking additional risk. Gotcha. Thanks for going into that. And a couple of things I'd like to, to speak to, because I'll relate to you in this respect, is having money in the cash value life insurance policy gives you, call it peace of mind, and a permission slip to be more aggressive in other areas. Absolutely. See? Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I love that because having that permission that permission slip or peace of mind, now I'm not always thinking about my money in the market, thinking about whatever it might be, which is ultimately going to slow you down, especially if you run a business. A lot of time, like you said, it's not captured at all, but you're <laughs> putting all this mental energy on it and then you're further behind than where you used to be. So if you've got that peace of mind saying, hey, I'm I'm good. I mean, I can take the risk over here. And if it goes well, that's great. If it doesn't go well, I've got my backup plan, the consistency on that cash value life insurance policy. Let me just put the pedal to the metal now with everything else that I do. If I'm running a business, for example, because I'm not thinking about all the other stuff that takes up all my mental energy and I don't sleep about it and I've got no quality of life. For sure. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the value of diversification and uncorrelated assets and there absolutely is almost no correlation with the returns on cash value life insurance and the the stock you know portion of your portfolio. And so in a year when maybe your stock portion of your portfolio lost 30 or 40 percent, you may have, you know, you, you know you're gonna gain somewhere between three and five percent on the cash value portion of your portfolio. And so that is a nice balancing act. Yes, it, it may not be, you know, gaining 15%, but the fact that you know you're not going to get a double whammy there with the bond portion of your portfolio and the stock portion of your portfolio in the same year allows you to stomach those low points of the stock market a little bit better. It's it's consistent and before we get into the kind of exercise as far as having money allocated in stocks and bonds and such I remember years ago, uh, before running a business, uh, shortly after my time at Northwestern Designing Policies for Corporations, there was an owner of a large company, and, and we were looking at a, a CERT plan for the, the board members, the executives of the company, and looking at whole life insurance, and they, they moved forward with it. I was just in the back end designing, so I heard you know the, the interaction, what was going on in the conversations, but the owner had life insurance policies, multiple policies with several of the different top companies for about 30 years. And his comment was, you know, when I look at these whole life insurance products, because this is what we're looking at for, for the company now, is aside from the ownership in my business, I've got stocks, bonds, everything else, these cash value life insurance policies have been by far my best asset <clears throat> because they're consistent. At 30 years into it now, I see I make a one of his policies as a $12,000 payment, and I look at the overall growth, there's 40 some odd thousand dollars, factoring in his 12K, of course, as well. Point being, no matter what happened, 2008, whatever it might be, just consistency gave him that peace of mind. And here's a very successful business owner and states, this is by far my best asset aside from my business that I own. Yeah, and I, I see situations like that all the time. Um, and you, you know, no matter how well designed the policy is, usually the earliest years of the policy are going to be the years when it performs the worst. And then as you get to be later and later in life, um, it, it tends to perform better and better. And eventually when you reach, let's say the 80s or 90s, 
there's a very good chance that the, the cash value life insurance is literally your most valuable and efficient asset because on a risk reward basis, the forward looking after tax returns relative to the amount of risk um, in that policy is, is going to be impossible or difficult, if not impossible to beat at that time. And it's one of the reasons why I like leaving cash value life insurance really until the very end of, of a liquidation um, supplemental income type scenario. And I know some people, um, you know, we've talked about this on, on another podcast with with the apparent value of leveraging and borrowing at a low rate and, and reinvesting within the policy at a high rate. Sometimes it can look appealing to start borrowing at earlier ages, but you know, we, we've talked about how illusory some of those um, illustrations can be. And I, I think a more prudent approach is to take withdrawals up to your cost basis, and then beyond that point, then take policy loans if you have to, but to defer those policy loans as long as possible, because in all likelihood, you'd be better off liquidating your 401k, your IRA, maybe not your Roth IRA, but your other assets and leaving the tax-free growth within your cash value life insurance in place. Now, that's painting with a broad brush, but I, I just see that so often that that people jump the gun on when it would when it would be ideal to distribute money from their cash value life insurance policy. Yeah, fully agree. And, and this could, this is definitely a great topic for another another podcast as well. That idea of distribution from a life insurance policy. <clears throat> we just did I just did a study. Um, it was yesterday. I concluded it yesterday. Whenever modeling income from life insurance policies, back to the illustration battles and such, but it's typically whoever projects the best income stream, that one looks the best, let's purchase it. But a lot of times there's disappointment if dividends go down or if an IUL was used to project the, the different income projections or income values. Point, point being is what we ran in that study is, hey, when we run incomes, here's the max I can take out, but what's it look like when I cut the dividend in half. What does it look like if I go down to the guarantees? How much can I actually pull out and properly set a, setting expectations for the individual? This way, there's no buyer's remorse. I'm not banking off 100K in income, and then I'm told, oh, you can pull out 65,000 because uh, things declined, it didn't do what we thought it would, and now you've got a big problem when you take a 35% hit on what you thought you could pull out. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, it, it's a little embarrassing, actually, I mean, to be these aspects of the industry. I mean, some of the most irresponsible illustrations are, are being run out there and, and, and people are buying um, products on the basis of these illustrations. And you're absolutely right. They're setting themselves up for disappointment. The, what I'm talking about today is a real advantage. It's, it's not based on some pie in the sky illustration or some continued arbitrage that you know is, is a point in time right now that looks really good and then is assumed to, to last for 40 or 50 years. What drives the advantage that I'm talking about today is that cash value life insurance has been afforded an incredible tax benefit. Um, originally when, when cash value life insurance was given that, that, that privilege, Life insurance was for widows, widowers, orphans. The idea that the the death benefit should be tax free, um, it it just was a feel good type of proposition. Well, 
rich people started to abuse that and use cash value life insurance as a tax haven. In the 80s, there was some regulation that was adopted to help curb some of those abuses. But the fact remains, there is an incredible tax haven that still exists for wealthy individuals who, who have the luxury of affording um, a cash value life insurance policy as an investment. And so what I'm talking about today is a real advantage that exists because if we create an optimally designed policy from a great company, you know, take all the actuarial elements into account, do the best we can there, pick the right design, pick the right company, minimize agent compensation as much as possible. If we do all of those things, the tax advantages that are afforded life insurance significantly outweigh the mortality and expense drag that are simply unavoidable on a life insurance policy. You're always going to have something. But if you do your job right in designing the policy, the, that drag associated with the mortality and expense components is overshadowed by the tax benefit of the life insurance policy. And there's no, there's no gimmick other than taking advantage of the, the tax privileges and taking advantage of the opportunity to optimize a policy design. So this isn't driven by some relationship in borrowing rates or borrowing from yourself and paying interest back or relying on some unsustainable dividend rate that, that is abnormally high right now. And, you know, we talked before about going through a numerical example, and I, th I think all of your listeners will see that there's no hocus pocus here. Like this is, right. a, this is a very straightforward exercise. And if you, if, if you add some of this magic, you know, and it actually comes to fruition, then yeah, you're, you're even better off. But if you can't make the case at a very basic bread and butter level, then you should be skeptical about whether or not cash value life insurance as an investment makes sense for you. Agreed. Yeah. Start start with the basics. If you like it as it is without all the extra fluff and making it look great, then you're going to be happy because if you add enhancements, if it works out, hey, that's great. But if you're relying on some enhancement or some you know, outside strategy of leverage and it doesn't work out, now it's like, man, I put all this money in here and I've got a problem now that uh, I'm at risk of losing it, taxes, whatever it might be. Um, but that happens. So, I mean, you know, I think it would be helpful for everybody um, to go through an example. And it was, are you game for that? Yeah, right so on. What, what I've found to be most beneficial is in talking with a client, let them set the stage, you know, rather than me leading them down a path and telling them like, you know, this is what I think and this is what I think and, and this is how it works out. I try to set it up in such a way that I'm doing the demonstration in the world that they think they may live in for the rest of their lifetime. And so we'll, you know, we'll kind of role play um, through this. And so, you know, I, I would say to you, Steve, what, what do you foresee the pre-tax bond yields, bond returns being over your remaining lifetime? I know you're a young guy, so you've got a long horizon here. Kind of as you think about your planning, what do you think is a reasonable rate of return going forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, from my experience and the experts I've spoken with, I'm expecting about a 4% yield on my bonds. And if, if I asked you the same thing for stocks, you know, over your remaining lifetime, before taxes, before expenses, what do you think is a reasonable assumption for the stock market? Yeah, again, with the experts I work with, 8% uh, I feel I can achieve 
uh, over the next uh, 50 years. All right. Those were, in fact, the right answers I was looking for. So I, 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 I <laughs> right. appreciate that uh, little, little pre-production work. Um, so what, what I look at then, um, I, I look at what you would earn in that world. Okay. So first, let, let me, first, let me start with the, the premise that most of the life insurance companies that have the types of policies that I would consider have a blend of fixed income and stocks in their own general account portfolios. And if you take a look at the historical allocation um, for those companies, their allocation to stocks or equity-like instruments is somewhere between 10 and 20%. So for the sake of this demonstration, I'm going to assume that they are 15% in stocks and 85% in bonds. Okay? Mm -hmm. Sounds good. So... I'm going to first lay out the case that does not that, that does not make a compelling argument for cash value life insurance, okay? And then we'll and then we'll build from there. So, if you're a do-it-yourself investor and you you invested in that same 85-15 split that we just talked about, I could figure out what your gross return would be. All right? Then I'd say, you know, you're investing in index funds, you're bare bones, you don't have an investment manager, you have very, very low investment expenses. And then we might say, you know, maybe you're not, maybe you're not at the highest income level. You're kind of in an intermediate level and you have a combined marginal tax bracket of 30%. When we take all of those things into account, your after-tax return is somewhere in the 3% neighborhood in that world that we just outlined. You said uh, 4% bonds, 8% stocks. You're a do-it-yourselfer. We went through that 85-15 allocation. You have low investment expenses. You have a relatively low tax bracket. Your after-tax long-term rate of return is about 3%. Sound good? I mean, maybe it doesn't sound attractive, but you're, you're tracking you. me at least. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're laying it out for me. I'm with you. Okay. So the insurance company does the same thing. Let's assume that the insurance company has no investment acumen whatsoever. They're just mirroring what you're doing in your index funds. And okay. so they have the same gross return. Um, interestingly enough, they have about the same investment expenses for big companies with, with big investment portfolios. They, they have very low, uh, almost on the level of index funds type expenses overall. Um, most companies have what they call a tax and surplus charge to um, differentiate between what they're earning and then what they're crediting. And so if I take that into account, my theory is that most of the big mutual companies would be able to easily support a dividend rate of let's say 4% in that world that I outlined. And if you just got a run of the mill average policy from an average company, full commission, no particular design efficiencies, at a minimum, the mortality and expense drag on that policy is gonna be 100 basis points. But just for the sake of this demonstration, we'll call it 100 basis points. And that takes you down from the dividend rate of 4% down to an after-tax return over your expected lifetime of 3%. And let me say too, for the purposes of the life insurance policy, I'm assuming that you hang on to the policy until death and that death occurs roughly at life expectancy. The calculation I do is a little bit more sophisticated than that, but it's not worth going into additional gotcha. details. All right, so, so it's basically a push. If you went out and got a run-of-the-mill 
average life insurance policy from a full commissioned agent, you are not going to improve your standing relative to being a do-it-yourselfer, low-cost investor. Okay, so that I've set the stage that that we're basically on an on an equivalent baseline. Does that make sense? It, it does. So yeah, originally based off my own investment strategy, I was at about a three percent after tax or after all taxes, three percent return. And then same thing with the insurance company. You had that dividend of four percent back out the hundred basis points. You with a basic old school whole life insurance product and with the same three percent. Yep. Gotcha. But but now I would say as I start to work with my high net worth clients, the picture starts to change dramatically. And there are four or five things that start to tilt the scales in favor of the cash value life insurance policy. So let me go through those things that 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 would start to, to rear their head. The first thing I'd say to you is that optically and cosmetically and just emotionally, the way that a cash value life insurance policy operates I would argue looks and feels like it's hundred percent bonds. So that if I'm comparing it to your own investment portfolio, I don't know that we need to do an 85, 15 split. I would argue that comparing it to hundred percent bonds really is probably more appropriate. And you know, you could rightfully point out, well, if you look through the dividend scale, they have an 85, 15 split and, and you'd be right. But the way insurance companies manage their dividend scale, they're very sticky. They absorb that volatility and spread it out over a multi-year period. And none of that volatility actually manifests itself in day-to-day or even year-to-year volatility within the cash value life insurance policy. And in fact, it's vastly more stable than a bond portfolio, which, as you know, can, can lose money from year to year. And you know whether you're talking an individual bond or a bond portfolio, if you get in a rising interest rate environment, you're going to have a negative return. And so the first thing I would say is that I don't have any qualms personally about comparing cash value life insurance to a 100% bond portfolio and treating it as a bond substitute within somebody's overall allocation. And I'm not a financial advisor, but if I were and somebody asked me, how would you treat a mutual company's cash value life insurance policy in somebody's portfolio. Would you look through it and say, oh, it's 85% bonds and 15% equities? Or would you consider it to be 100% bonds? And I would choose the latter. I would consider it to be 100% bonds because of the way it performs and because of the lack of the volatility in the cash value. Gotcha. That's one advantage that I see um, for the cash value life insurance. Another advantage, many of the people that I deal with are not do-it-yourselfers. They may have uh, a money manager, a, a financial advisor who is investing their money perhaps on an assets under management basis. And if that's happening, that money manager may also be investing in something other than index funds to, to help justify their existence. And you could easily end up with more than 100 basis points of annualized investment expense. Yeah. Easily. Um, the other thing is that when you move into the higher net, net worth end of the bracket, uh, of the brackets, you have a higher marginal tax rate. And so it's not unusual for me to be dealing with somebody that has, let's say, a 40% combined tax rate. The fact that we're also now viewing this completely as a bond substitute and not some combination of bond and equities also drives up the marginal tax rate because now everything would be ordinary income taxes 
Whereas if you had some equity exposure, you've, you know, you've got some deferral and then potentially some capital gains tax rates on the back end that help drive down your effective marginal tax rate. But now if we're really viewing this as a, as a bond, a taxable bond substitute for a high net worth individual, you easily could say that the, that the tax rate could be 40%. Sure. Uh, agreed. And then the final piece of this is we don't need to go out and just get an average life insurance policy from an average company. We can go get an optimal policy from an elite company and you can maximize the design both from an actuarial perspective and from a commission perspective. Then I believe that we could design a policy that would have a long-term expected return of about 3.5% in that world. All right. And so now when we combine, when we compare that 3.5% return um, from the insurance company, we end up with somewhere between a 100 and 200 basis point advantage on the taxable bond returns that you would have in a comparable situation. And so with all of these different advantages that, that come into play, in certain situations, we can convert cash value life insurance from basically being a wash with taxable bond investing into a situation where, you know, it, if all these things line up, you can have a long-term annualized return advantage of somewhere between 100 and 200, and let's call it 150 basis points kind of on average over your lifetime. And that's significant. I mean, if, if you if you talk about going from a 2% annualized return to a 3.5% annualized return over your lifetime, that, that's incredible. The final thing I'll say is that there are some companies out there that quite possibly have more investment acumen than a do-it-yourselfer or a financial manager. And it can cut both ways. I'll be the first to admit that. But if you look at the track record of some of your bigger, bigger mutual companies, they have been able to sustain dividend interest rates that are higher than what you would think possible given the bond and interest rate environment that we've been in. And some companies will tell you that they've been able to do that because of investment efficiencies in, in other areas of the company or because they've made some good decisions with respect to where they are on the yield curve and in what duration they are and and shifting between corporate and government bonds and things like that. Again, that can cut both ways. I'll be the first to admit that. But nonetheless, we do have a pretty long track record of some companies having very attractive dividend interest rates. And notice my analysis didn't even count on any of that. I'm just doing a straight, this is what, this is what bond yields are. This is what stock returns are. And if we just assume they're at market, you can design this in such a way that the tax advantages of cash value life insurance more than outweigh the mortality and expense drags. And whether it's a 50 basis point advantage or a 100 basis point advantage or 150, the reality is that there is an advantage there if you check off all the boxes that we've talked about. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nice. Thanks so much for, for going into that. And I think a big thing there too is it goes beyond just the cash value life insurance policy. I mean, you and I love to talk about designing policies, juicing them for maximum cash value, and how it can be really creative. You know, different companies have different you know flexibility features and such. But a big value add 
that you provide is saying, okay, yes, I can, if I'm your client, you're working with me, you can teach me and work with my agent to make sure that that is set up properly, but it's also, what else do you got, right? Well, what else do we have going on? And here's your overall picture in terms of optimizing your overall return with everything going on. Granted, you mentioned you're not a financial advisor, but with your background, expertise in insurance, and just weighing everything out as a nice third-party opinion, ton of value there. And just painting it nicely, here's option A, your current path, and then here's option B after we plug some different assumptions in here that are all real assumptions. They're just leveraging the cash value life insurance asset, and now all of a sudden you're so much further ahead could be a, a point, a point and a half. If you're looking at millions of dollars, that, that's a huge, huge number, right? When you're looking at big dollar figures going into a life insurance policy. And if you're not looking at millions of dollars, it's the same thing from a yield standpoint. So it's it's interesting. I think it's definitely good for individuals to hear that, that that's a service you provide in looking at a lot more than just the life insurance. I should say, looking at the life insurance and tying it in with everything else. Yeah, and I, I think you know a couple more points come to mind um, as well. I, I think one thing that that people are always shocked to find out is there's such a difference in life insurance companies and life insurance policies. And I think you know, like maybe people think like it's it's buying a car, you know, and and my car is going to cost thirty thousand dollars, and if I spend thirty thousand dollars, I'm I'm going to get you know uh, yeah. a Toyota Camry or yeah you know, whatever you can get for thirty thousand dollars these days. And they kind of think like, well, maybe it's a Honda, maybe it's a Toyota, but I'm going to get something comparable. In the world of life insurance, if you spend $30,000, I mean, you might be getting a Maserati or you might be getting a, you know, uh, a Datsun. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it, I, it, it, it makes a huge difference that that mm-hmm. the design and the company and I think so many people think like, ah, it's, it's life insurance. Like, what's the difference? And my agent told me this is a great company. Well, I mean, newsflash, every insurance, com- every insurance agent everywhere is going to tell you that their insurance company is a great company. Um, I'll never forget one of the first policies I bought, you know, before I was in the industry, you know, the agent swore up and down that this is one of the finest companies around. And I mean, I was, I was on board. And then the company went insolvent. You know, it was one of these, uh, there was a run on the bank and there was some some bad media and some things you could point to, but, um, you know, the insurance company went insolvent and uh, we, we, had, we had to go a different direction um, with, with that insurance coverage. So, I mean, that was something I never forgot that insurance agents are great salespeople. If they didn't believe in the company and the policy that they were selling, they wouldn't sell it. And I, I don't think that they're bad people. I, I think that, that that's how they've been trained. They obviously have a financial incentive to sell certain policies and, and to sell policies a certain way, but there may not be anything sinister there. They, they may simply not know better, or, or maybe they do, and they just have the viewpoint that, look, if I'm not around to service the policy, who am I benefiting? And so I need to design this policy in a way that puts food on the table and ensures that I'm going to be in the business 30, 40 years from now. And I can't fault them for, for that. But people can't also fault me when I'm a fiduciary and somebody hires me to look out for their best interest. If I believe that there is a better way to design something and one of the byproducts of that is that commissions get squeezed or minimized in the process, that's an an unavoidable consequence of what I do. I can't hold myself out as looking out for the best interests of my clients and then hold back 
and not show them something that that you know f- from a fiduciary perspe- perspective I believe puts them in a better position. So that 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 was a long point I know, but that was that was one thing that that I wanted to to point out. The other thing that comes to mind is cash value life insurance is not appropriate for everybody. There's a lot of people and and maybe some of them listening to this call, you may not be in a position where cash value life insurance makes sense. Get your term coverage in place, make sure your income is protected, make sure your spouse and your dependents are protected in the event of your early demise. And that is a far higher order of priority than worrying about your investments or supplemental retirement income. You need to make sure that the people you love are protected and cared for in the event something happens to you. And term insurance is cheap. Um, And now if you start having some extra money at your disposal, it may make some sense to move into cash value life insurance, but it may not make sense to move into that, you know, $50 or $100 a month type of policy, you know, $50,000 death benefit. That is not a good investment. All right. You, that, if you don't have the savings discipline to save any money, it may make sense for you just as a forced savings plan. And you might be better off than not having that in place, but somebody in that situation should not operate under the illusion that they're getting the economies of scale and reaping the tax benefits that we've talked about here. They're, they're going to be in a low marginal tax bracket. Um, not the same. The policy is going to be small. It's, it's not going to have the same efficiencies. And so when you do the math, that is not going to look like a good investment relative to being a disciplined saver on your own and investing in, you know, some do-it-yourself, you know, non-insurance alternative. And so I, I think this is where insurance gets a bad name a little bit is, is people attempt to paint with a broad brush that they'll probably even use this podcast. Yeah. See, Scott Witt said that, you know, <laughs> cash value life insurance can be a great investment. Yes, mm-hmm. it, it can be a great investment, but I would go so far as to say that the vast majority of cash value life insurance policies that are purchased today are not yeah. Not, not, not only are they not great investments, they're probably not good investments. And many of them are just sort of average, but many are also below average. And maybe people bought them with, with a mistaken impression that, you know what, this is a pretty good investment. So there, there's a wide spectrum of results. Your situation matters. The specifics of the policy, the company, the design, all of those things matter. And you can't just come up with a one size fits all description. And, you know, I get interviewed a lot by, by national media types and understandably they want to boil my comments down to one or two sentences, you know, is cash value life insurance good? Is it bad? And it's such a nuanced argument that it's almost impossible for a national journalist to do justice to the topic with the amount of column inches that, that they're afforded. And so, you know, I'm quoted out there, but sometimes it's, <laughs> it's out of context or um, it's just, they're, they're not able to give all of the color surrounding the situation. And I get it, but you know, kudos to everyone that's, that stayed and listened to the end of this podcast. Cause hopefully, um, hopefully you've taken something away and, and can apply it in your own personal situation. You know, whether or not you ever utilize my services or, or somebody like me, Hopefully you're you're better educated and and better able to look out for yourself, and not just follow the advice of somebody who has an inherent conflict of interest. Right, right on. Yeah, no, thanks so much for for going into that. Yeah, my comment as far as when 
you talk to a media or whoever it might be and they only get a piece of what you said and that's posted like, all right, that's not really accurate. You really got to tell the whole story. My viewpoint is that I'll always go to the source, you know, when we hear all stuff with whatever industry or business, what did the source say? Just it is what it is and then move on, you know, all the games that go on out there. Um, but no, great stuff. I mean, Certainly a lot of stuff uh, that you had mentioned uh, fitting for another another podcast. Um, the topic I'm interested in is what you had mentioned, insurance companies and, you know, they're all the same or all perform very similar, which is not the case, as you mentioned. There's a lot of differences when you look at actual performance and such, but that'll be a fun topic for another time. For sure. Yeah. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. Likewise. Well, that's... That's all we've got. Look, we're at the top of the hour here. But um, really appreciate your time as always, Scott. Uh, we will talk to you next time. And thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Steve.